From Exodus 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to, used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshiped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. All right, hey, good morning. Welcome to Trinity. It is great to see you again. This is the fourth Sunday of Advent, the traditional season leading up to Christmas where we are longing for more. We are creating space for the presence of God. And this is also the final week in our series on God's heart for renewal, where we have been tracing through the scriptures, through church history, looking at the elements of how God brings about renewal in the hearts and lives of his people, how he revives entire communities. 
And so when you take these two things together, Advent and this series on God's heart for renewal, we are, we are longing for more of God. We are longing for more of his presence, his presence within us, his presence among us, his presence around us. And when I, when I say this phrase, the, the presence of God, that's a lot more than just sort of a buzzword in the church. You may have heard the word presence over and over in, in churches, but the presence of God is a very strong, powerful, essential theme to our Christian lives. God is with us. He doesn't just merely exist in general, but he is with us in particular for his people. He goes before us. He is among us. He is within us. He makes his face to shine on us. He watches over us. He surrounds us with protection. All of these phrases in the scriptures remind us of God's particular presence with us and for us. There was a study done by sociologists many years ago, but they went around and they took uh, non-church attending people and they said, if there was anything that would get you to return to church, what would it be? In other words, if Christians could do one thing to get you back in church, what would it be? And the single most common response that they got was, I would go to church if I knew I would experience God there. What people are after, even outside the church, is the presence of God, whether they exactly know it and can formulate it in that way or not. My experience with my friends outside the church, my, my non-believing friends, it's not that they're rejecting the presence of God, but rather they're rejecting churches and, and the religion that has no need for the presence of God. And so if a non-believer walks into our gathering and sees nothing different from the world, what good is that to him or her? What we're looking at today is the presence of God, and we're going to look at it in three ways. Our need of God's presence, seeking the presence, and then dwelling in the presence. So our need of the presence, seeking the presence, and then dwelling in God's presence. So we're going to start with our need. And to understand Exodus 33, which is one of the greatest chapters in all of the Old Testament, I mean, powerful chapter in the Old Testament, there's a book that I've mentioned several times in this series by Martin Lloyd-Jones on revival. And the book is, one third of the book is just talking about Exodus 33, over a hundred pages. It was way too much prep for this week. But to understand this, this glorious chapter, Exodus 33, we have to go back one to Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, it begins with Moses going up on Mount Sinai with God, and he's been away for a little while, and the people just fall into disarray. 32 verse 1 says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. All right, so just a few weeks go by, and suddenly they're saying, this fellow Moses who, who led us out of Egypt, we don't even know where he is. And so they go on, and if you know the story, they, they take all their jewelry, melt it down, and create this golden calf. So that when Moses comes back down from the mountain, the people are, are laying down, worshiping this golden calf that they have created. And you might be tempted to jump to the conclusion to say those, those Israelites were especially sinful. We would never do something like that. We would never, you know, just a couple weeks go by and suddenly we're making a golden calf. We wouldn't do that. 
but we can't really give ourselves that much credit. This is just a very tangible expression of what we do all the time. It's just in our culture, we don't make golden calves. That's not a thing that we do. But what happened was that Israel was growing cold spiritually. They had become dry. They had become stagnant. It didn't even take that long for them to feel disconnected from God's presence. And as a result, they simply turned to worldly things for meaning, for satisfaction, for entertainment, for comfort. What matters is not the particular sin of Israel, but the thing beneath the thing. And the thing beneath the thing is always the same for us as people. There's always a, a root sin beneath every other sin. And it's that we, we think too little of God and his glory. We have too small of a view of God and our, our heart is too little affected by God's glory. It's both our, our mind that we don't have the right thoughts of God, but even, even more so, I would suggest it's our hearts and the faint desires we have for the glory of God. That's beneath everything else. And so I hope we can connect with the Israelites, even though this is such a different thing than we would do. This represents a moment of spiritual decline. And if you've been a believer for probably any amount of time, you know what it's like to grow cold to become dry, to become stagnant in your walk with the Lord. Now, the result of all this for Israel is that God is going to bring judgment on Israel. But it's interesting, it's, it's not really how we would expect. God, God decides to bring judgment on Israel, but it's, it looks nothing like what I would picture as God's judgment coming down. Exodus 33, we pick it up in verse 1, our passage. God says, go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out all your enemies. Go up to this land. It's a, it's a beautiful land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's interesting. God is saying, because of the promise that I've made to Abraham, I'm still going to give you success. I'm still going to send you into the promised land, this, this beautiful place that has everything that you need. It's everything you ever wanted. You're still going to get to go there because of my oath with Abraham. I'm going to drive out the six nations that are currently in the land. I'm going to give you success beyond your wildest imagination. There's only one problem, and it comes in verse 3. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. So I hope you can see that this is a great act of judgment. It's something that, that Cam talked about last week. We see it in, in Romans 1. We see it all throughout the scriptures that one of the ways that God brings judgment against people is by giving them exactly what they want, but without giving him, without giving them himself. He gives them the desires of their hearts, but he withdraws his presence. And so right here, I want you to pause and think, what if I got everything I ever wanted? What if I had incredible success in my work? What if I had this incredible marriage, superstar kids, finances could pay for anything, you know, a little bit of fame. I've got reputation in the community. I'm surrounded by friends and admirers at the end of my life. What if you could have all of that but just lack the presence of God? Would you recognize that as God's judgment on you? 
getting everything you ever wanted without the presence of God. Now, Israel, to their credit, they are crushed by this. They realize that to have everything but not to have God is no good at all. And so in verse 4, it says, When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. Throughout this, this series on God's heart for renewal, we've been describing this pattern of renewal that takes place in, in renewals that happen in Scripture, revivals that have happened in church history. There's a common pattern, and it's not something that we can create in, in the sense that if we do X, Y, and Z, God will then bless us with revival. But instead, when you look back on the way he renews our hearts, there's a similar pattern. And it always begins after a period of decline the first movement is a, what we've called a holy discontent. People are no longer content or satisfied with the condition of their own hearts. They mourn, they cry out, they, they strip off their ornaments as the Israelites do. The things that, that identify them with their old lives, they get rid of them. The next steps that we've talked about in our series is preparation and contending in prayer. And what we see in our passage is that Moses does that on behalf of the Israelites. He goes to God on behalf of Israel, representing Israel to God and God to Israel. They're discontent. And the second movement of this text is that they begin to seek the presence of God. So seeking the presence of God, beginning in verse 7. It says, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, the, the Israelites have, have experienced God's presence in the wilderness. They're, they're wandering through the wilderness 40 years, and they've experienced God's presence in two ways. The first way is as they are traveling, God is with them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So anytime they're traveling, they're going through enemy territory, their enemies could look down in a valley and see two million people but then they'd see this cloud of fire above them and think we probably shouldn't attack these people. It was a means of God keeping them safe in the wilderness all these years. And so that was one means of God's presence as they were traveling. But whenever they would stop and rest and set up their tents, Moses would set up a tent for God called the tent of meeting. Another word for it is a tabernacle. And Moses would go in and you heard the verse, he would speak with God face-to-face -face as one friend speaks to another. And so these are the, the tangible expressions of God's presence in this time period for God's people. But now in our text, God is saying, I will no longer lead you by a pillar of cloud and fire. Instead, I'm just going to send my angel. And Moses, you lead them up. And because of his great holiness and, and the sin that Israel had committed, God is saying, I'm no longer going to dwell. My tent of meeting cannot be inside your camp or else I might wipe out all of you. And so what Moses did was set up the tent of meeting outside the camp. 
so that God's fury, his, his holiness would not consume the people. And so Moses would leave the camp. The people inside would stand at their tents. He would leave the camp and enter the presence of God in the tent of meeting. This is what we call the ministry of intercession, representing God's people, representing people who are far from God to God himself. In the summer series that we did on the Lord's Prayer, we talked a lot about intercessory prayer. It's, it's primarily prayer for other people, but it's so much more than that. The heart of intercession is not just praying for others instead of ourselves. The heart of intercession is praying that God would be God for a particular people and at a particular time. The ministry of intercession is is somebody going on behalf of people who are far from God, before God, and just telling God who he is and asking God to be that for a specific people. For all of your glory, all of your fame, all of your goodness, Lord, would you be that here and now for these people who are far from you? That's the ministry of intercession. Intercession is standing in the gap between God and man. In verse 15, Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. He's essentially saying, if you don't go with us, then don't give us any of the success you just promised. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? And so intercession is saying, God, we are stuck without you. The very thing that we need is your presence. And if you withdraw that from us, we are stuck forever. We cannot do this alone. We need you. We need you to be who you are for us or for these people right now. And so Moses' faith, it's it's an example for us. We've seen he was just up on the mountain for this week's-long encounter with God. But when he comes down, the, the people are, you know, they're, they're wiling out, it's, as the kids in my cul-de-sac say. They're going absolutely crazy. And so Moses is angry. God is angry. And God says he's this close to wiping them all out, and Moses intercedes. This is in verse thir- or chapter 32, but he essentially says, You can kill me, Lord, but don't wipe out your people. And God says, okay, because of my covenant with Abraham, I'll let them live, but I'm not going with you. Moses comes back and says, no, that's not enough. We need your presence. And so God says, verse 17, I will do what you ask because I'm pleased with you. And then did you notice Moses says a third time, it's not enough. Verse 18, Moses says, now show me your glory. It's like Moses is is on a roll here. God has said, I'm going to wipe you out. And Moses says, don't do that. God says, okay. And then Moses says, well, since you're not going to wipe us out, will you go with us? And God says, okay. And if that's not enough, Moses being on a roll, he says, one more thing. Will you show me your glory? And again, God says, okay. Moses is begging God to be who he is for him and for these people. Nothing is enough for Moses except more of God's presence. What Moses realized is that the presence of God is the goal of renewal. The presence of God is, is the goal of, of renewal. It's the goal of all life. 
God's presence is what this life is for. It's the glorious end of everything. It's what all renewal is pointing towards. I don't know if you, if you remember that old movie, Dead Poets Society, but Robin Williams has this really famous bit in there where he says, we read and write poetry because we are members of the human race, and the human race is filled with passion. Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are all noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life, but poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. Now, the young people will say, I thought that was an iPad commercial. It is, but it's from a movie that's better than the commercial. And it's as if God, God is saying, Moses is saying, look, the spiritual disciplines, church, ministry, they're all good. They're all necessary to sustain life. But the presence of God, that's what we stay alive for. That's what all of this is for, is for God's presence. This is the pattern of renewal after a period of decline, holy discontent. And that's followed by a season of preparation where people remove from their lives all the things that gets in the way of God's presence and then contending in prayer or interceding, asking God to be who he is in a particular place. And so renewal happens when the presence of God descends with power whether it's on an individual or whether it's on a community. That's the third movement of Exodus 33, dwelling in the presence. Verse 19, And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. I love that Moses asks for just a glimpse of the glory of God. He already has God's presence. He already has God's ear. He knows that he's pleasing to God. And so he asks for more of God's glory, more of his presence. And God says, yes. This is the exact kind of prayer that God loves us to bring to him. Bring more. Give me more of your presence, more of your glory. Forget the things of the world, but I need more of you. Give me a knowledge of you, an experience of you. Now, I want to encourage you to read Exodus 34 later on, whether it's this afternoon or tomorrow morning when you get up. Read Exodus 34 and this encounter that Moses has with the Lord as the glory passes by and Moses just gets a glimpse from behind. It's after this moment, Moses is changed forever. Remember, he comes down on the mountain and his face is is illuminated. It's glowing so bright he has to put a veil on. For the rest of his life, Moses is changed by this encounter with the presence of God. What does it mean to dwell in God's presence? To seek to to put ourselves into God's presence each and every day, it's, it's to recognize that the default mode of our heart is always to move towards dryness. It's always to move towards coldness, always to move towards stagnation. And that's why God brings renewal in our lives. He's constantly calling us back to himself 
consistently seek to refresh yourself in God's presence. Like Moses, if God says, I I can't dwell in this particular area or I can't show up for you in this area that you're wanting me to inside the camp, but I will set up my presence over here in a place you didn't expect, maybe a place you didn't want. Follow the example of Moses and, and go to that place. I mean, take what you can get. If God's not showing up in the place where you want him to, but he's showing up somewhere else, then by all means, go over here and meet with God in all his presence. But I keep coming back to Moses, just saying over and over, it's not enough, God. Go with us. Show me your glory. Moses' prayers, they're, they're so bold. I mean, absolutely, this is bold faith, but, but I think of it more as a childlike faith. It's probably because I have kids this week. You know, it's December. Christmas is like in five days. So we have cookies everywhere. The whole house is just cookies, just stacks on stacks, cookies everywhere. And so my youngest, Jack, he's six. He's, we're in the kitchen. He says, Dad, can I have a cookie? And I'm looking around. I'm like, all right, one cookie. All right, one cookie. So he climbs up on the counter, opens the cabinet. He gets a cookie out. And what does he do? He turns around and looks at me and says, Dad, can I have two cookies? <laughs> so I'm like, no, I, I said one cookie. I, I was very particular in saying one cookie. But then again, I look around. I'm like, is mom upstairs? All right, you can have two cookies, but no more. Of course, what's he going to do? He grabs his two cookies, turns around, smiles, and says, how about three when, when a child assumes that their parent is going to act generously towards them, when, when a child knows how to like hit the heart of the parent and, and you know, break them down, in this case with cuteness, however it is, they're going to continue to ask, continue to go. Moses can't imagine a world in which God doesn't bless him with more knowledge of him, more of his presence, more of his glory. And so Moses keeps on asking and asking for more of God. I said before, the presence of God is is the goal of renewal. It's what this life is moving towards. It's it's the end. But this passage also shows us that, that God's presence is the means of our life. It's not just the end of our life, it's how we get there. It's not just the goal, it's, it's the process, it's the journey. Now, I wish I came up with this, but it comes from a theologian, Ryan Lister, in his book, The Presence of God. He writes, the first truth is this, the presence of God is a central goal in God's redemptive mission. The second truth follows, the presence of God is the agent by which the Lord accomplishes his redemptive mission. God's presence then is both eschatological, it's the end-of-time aim of the Lord's mission, and it's instrumental, it's ultimately what fulfills God's mission. So he's saying the presence of God is both the goal of renewal and the means of renewal. It's both the end goal of our lives, and it's the way that we reach that end goal. In revivals, historically, this is the one thing that's always there. Jonathan Edwards' wife, after the Great Awakening, she was asked, what's one thing you want people to know about what happened here? And she said, there was an awareness of the presence of God. You see this in almost every revival historically, there's an awareness of the presence of God, not just in general, but a particular, strong, powerful, we call it the manifest 
presence of God. It's that heavy feeling of God's presence among us. That sense of, of awe when you're, when you're worshiping God with other people. When you're praying and tears begin to fall. When you're on your knees with other people begging God for his kingdom to come. In the manifest presence of God, we have this expectancy that he'll hear our prayers for the, for the sick or for the afflicted. There can be an inexpressible power in our gatherings as if God is really who he says he is. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul writes, if an unbeliever comes in while everyone is experiencing the power of God, they will be convicted of sin. The secrets of their heart will be laid bare. They will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. He's saying the power of Christianity, it's not primarily intellectual, but it's experiential. It's not just truths about God, but it's the very presence of God and, and lives that have been changed by that presence. The average person, the average church, myself, for sure, we can so easily become consumed with secondary things in the church, whether it's you know, being culturally savvy or, or maybe it's worship preferences that we're arguing about or, or, or maybe it's just the busyness of events and, and ministry. And again, to go back to the Robin Williams quote, none of those things are bad. They're necessary to sustain life, but it's the presence of God that we sustain life for. Now, in closing, thankfully, we, we don't have to sit around and wonder what the presence of God would look like on this earth. You remember that terrible song, What If God Was One of Us? Just a Stranger on the Bus, that terrible song? We don't, we don't have to do that thought experiment, all right? Scriptures say the presence of God became flesh and dwelled among us. Hebrews 1 says it like this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, the radiance of God's glory. After he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now this is the good news of Christmas. This is the, the demonstration of God's heart for renewal. Our greatest need in life is the presence of God and the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, was born for this very reason, to restore to us the presence of God. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. And so as we, as we close this long series, it's the same thing we've said every week. Seek his face. Don't be content with a small mind about God. Don't be content with faint desires in your heart for God. Pray that God's presence would flood your life each and every day. Intercede for your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, those who are far off from God. Stand in the gap for them. 
And more than anything else, go back to God over and over and over like a little child and say, show me your glory. Let's pray.